Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well. We're in our, well, newer sermon series. It's the second week of a three-part series called Who's the Judge? And if you missed last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It's on our website. It's on the internet. It's on YouTube. Go back and listen to that because you're coming halfway through. And this is one of those series that everything does build upon the previous week. And so if you missed it, please go back and listen. This week will make a lot more sense. Because last week we took our time at walking through one of the most misquoted and misunderstood passages in all the scripture. It's found in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. And we learned last week that Jesus did say, do not judge. But that's not all Jesus said. We learned that what Jesus was saying was not to condemn others. He was telling us to get rid of our critical and judgmental attitudes towards other people. And we learned by no means was Jesus telling us not, uh, by no means was Jesus telling us to ignore sin, but he's telling us to stop being so negative based on our personal preferences. Like when you, someone walks by and you go, oh, did you see their shoes? Why do you, why do you care about their shoes, Jesus would say. You're not even wearing them. Like that's what we learned last week. What we're going to talk about today is going to be a little, it's going to be a little bit, a little bit tougher. It's going to hit home a little bit harder because what we're going to learn today is that we are simply told to hold each other accountable in the local church. And this doesn't mean that we should be actively trying to point people's faults. We shouldn't be actively spying on people to see when they slip up so we can kind of jump on them. But there are times when a sin is sin and the church should do something about it. And like you, I've heard the horror stories of churches getting this wrong. So if you or your family member have been hurt by a church practicing what's called church discipline, or you've heard how people just got it wrong and, and so many people were upset and hurt, listen, I completely understand that. And I'm sorry that happened to you. But we have to acknowledge that we have to be careful when applying these passages we're going to look at today. But nevertheless, these passages are in the Bible to help us navigate conflict and help us navigate sin. And I've yet to meet a pastor or a church member who is excited about what we're about to talk about. And if you are excited about these verses, you probably have other things you need to deal with. But yet, since this whole idea of church was Jesus's idea, it would make sense that we then follow his guidance on how to deal with conflict and sin. Here's the passage I want to start off with, and I need you to remember this. When we talk about everything else we're going to talk about, remember this passage. It's Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Paul says, brothers and sisters, that's us, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore. I need you to understand this right up front. At the end of the day, our goal is always restoration. Always and always restoration. Spirit should restore that person harshly. So on the screen, folks, gently, right? We should do it gently. But watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and this way you will fulfill the law 
of Christ. Now, the law of Christ is referring to the love God with you everything and love others as yourself. So the law of Christ is this idea of loving people. And love understands, this is important, love understands that sin is unhealthy. Love understands that sin does not help a person, but hurts a person. Love understands that sin is unhealthy and unproductive. And so when we are dealing with a brother and sister who's caught in sin, we understand that, listen, this isn't going to help you. This is going to harm you. And out of love, I want to help you get out of that. You see, restore means to put in order, put something back to its former condition. In other words, we want to help them become healthy and holy. You see, our theological word for today is this. Next slide. Sanctification. I'm sure you already know about this, but let's go ahead and talk about it anyways. Sanctification means to be set apart as sacred. In Christ, remember, if you are a believer, if you're interested in learning about Jesus, this is what it means. When, when you come to Christ or you give your life to Christ, you are then set apart. You have been declared holy. Because what's true of Christ then becomes true of you. It's we're in Christ. So because Christ is holy, I'm declared holy. It's not that I'm actually holy, but it's because I'm in Christ. I'm hidden in what he has done. So sanctification means we are set apart for God's service because we're Christians. We're in Christ. We're holy. But also it speaks to our growth towards Christ-likeness. Just because I'm in Christ doesn't mean I'm Christ. And while I'm never going to be perfect, it doesn't give me an excuse to ignore him. Sanctification speaks to my spiritual growth, becoming holy and also understanding that I am declared holy because of Christ. I'm sure you know this, but sin separates us from God. Sin is the exact opposite of holiness. Now, yes, of course, we all sin. None of us are perfect. We know that. But pay attention to Paul. Remember, he said, if anyone is caught in sin, if we're caught in sin, and that means overwhelmed or entrapped, it's not like someone just cuts you off and you accidentally said something. It's that if you're overwhelmed and caught up in this sin, like it's just overwhelming you. Because life happens. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but sometimes you can sin and the next thing you know is snowballs and it just kind of gets out of control. And the next thing you know, you're going, well, how did I, how did I get here? So Paul says those who are spiritual should step up and help. And Paul says we do this gently, which is rather amusing because if you've ever read a lot of Paul, he doesn't seem very gentle, But remember, gentle should always be our goal. But just because we want to be gentle doesn't mean we always can be. For instance, I never want to raise my voice at my kids. That's never my goal. But do I have to raise my voice at my kids? Absolutely, or they wouldn't hear me. They are so loud. I don't want to, but I have to. Paul doesn't want to be harsh. He doesn't want to be straightforward. He doesn't want to be so direct, but sometimes he has to be. But our goal should do this gently. Because when something is valuable, when something is valuable and it's broken, you treat it gently to restore it. You don't shake it around. You don't treat it harshly. If it's valuable, it's important. You would treat it 
very gentle, try to fix that broken piece. I'm, I'm holding a vase, if you can't tell. That's what that is. It's a vase, a broken vase. I would, I would treat it very carefully. And human beings, we are valuable. We are precious. We are important to God. And so we should treat each other gently when we're restoring them. But I love it. Paul says, watch out so you don't fall into sin yourself. He's probably speaking about pride. Because isn't it easy to be prideful when someone else is a mess? Well, don't lie. You're human. You're like, whew. At least I'm not them. I can't believe they did that. Paul said, no, no, watch out that you're not tempted when you're trying to help your brother and sister in Christ to become prideful of how great you are. So he says to carry each other's burdens, which means help them deal with it. And so when we're dealing with sin and when a brother and sister is caught in sin, we want to help them, make them or restore them back to what Christ has called them to be, but we want to do this gently. And it doesn't mean we're going to get it right every time, but it means we should strive towards it. In other words, as a community of, of Jesus followers, we have to agree upon to follow God's word and to let him direct our lives. Because Christians have been using this now for 1,700 years. But let's not confuse one thing. This is very important. Let's not confuse our calling as a church, as a body of Christ, to help each other. Let's not confuse that to a calling to be the world's judge. This is very important. Because look at what Paul says. He says, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. He says, I wrote to you in a letter... So we don't have this letter. We all wish we still had this letter, but this is one of those lost things that, that wasn't preserved. But it's, we don't know. He's talking about something else. So I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, immoral people. He said, I told you not to hang out with him. But hold on. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to Leave the world. Paul says, yeah, I wrote to you before not to hang out with people who are doing those things. He said, but I didn't mean to stop hanging out with anybody who does them. My goodness, you, you wouldn't be able to even be here. So evidently this church thought either A, well, we're not supposed to have to do, we're not supposed to have anything to do with people who sin. So they were either completely ignoring anything he said or they were just taking it too far, were unsure. But Paul said, no, no, no. How are you going to reach people for Christ if you can't talk to people who are in sin? He says, it's impossible. I didn't mean you can't hang out with people who aren't Christians. Because we cannot expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We should not expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We can't judge them by our standard. It doesn't, it doesn't work. But he says this, this is the harsh part. Look at this, verse 11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but a sexual moral or the greedy or the idolater or the slander or the drunker or the swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So Paul says, no, 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 I didn't mean that you can't talk to people or hang out with people or have a witness to people who are in sin. He said, but if someone says they're a brother or sister in Christ and they're living a blatant lifestyle of it, you need to disassociate yourself from them. And remember, we already looked at the goal is what? 
Restoration, please don't forget that. The goal is restoration. It'll all come back. This all makes sense in a minute. We already know he's told us to restore them gently. But if you go to somebody and they refuse to repent or they want to continue living this lifestyle, Paul says, no, no, no. Don't even, don't even associate with him. David Garland helps us out with this. He says this. It's long. He says, eating together connoted more than uh, friendliness in ancient culture. It created a social bond when Christians ate together. It reinforced and confirmed their solidarity established by their shared confession and faith in Christ. Refusing to eat with a fellow Christians guilty of such acts breaks all social ties with them as excludes them from the Lord's Supper. Next slide. This exclusion may seem harsh and intolerant, a reversion to the narrow separatism of the Pharisees, but Christians who are no different morally from unbelievers blur the clear distinction between the church and the world and destroy their testimony to God's transforming power in their lives. Those who blatantly, those who are blatantly immoral cannot be allowed to appear to represent what it means to be Christian. In other words, what Paul's saying, if someone is blatantly immoral, if someone's blatantly living a lifestyle of sin, we cannot, as a church, affirm them. We do not want the world to think this is a testimony of who Christ is. This is a testimony of his goodness and his greatness. In other words, we should be and are commanded to be concerned about the testimony of our body. Kind of, it's tough, isn't it? It's heavy. And this is not just talking about people who sin, but people who are blatantly living a life contrary to Scripture. You see, our goal is to bring glory to God, not shame to him. And before we get too upset about this, remember, standards are just how the world works. Did you know all lawyers have a standard they must keep in order to practice law? What do they have to pass? You've seen TV shows. What's it called? The bar, right? Do they have ethical standards? Can they be disbarred? Oh, of course. How about doctors? Do they have standards? Medical doctors. I hope so. Would you want a doctor who's like, you know what? I'm not even worried about that. We're just going to go do our own thing. You'd say, no. Did you know teachers have standards? Did you know electricians have standards? Did you know HVAC workers have standards? Did you know the world works that people actually have standards? So to think that somehow in the church we should have none, does that even make any sense? In fact, there are standards that you and I must keep to drive a car. What's that thing we all have to get? A driver's license, right. And I don't know about you, don't tell anybody. It's a secret between you and me. I might not always keep all the laws when I drive. Like I've went over the speed limit once or twice by one mile an hour, right? I'll admit to that and that only. Rocky, you're not allowed to talk right now, okay? But you know as well as I know that when we speed, the police officers generally give us about five miles an hour, don't they? Sometimes a little bit more, hopefully not less, but generally they're a little bit lenient. And so we know there is a big difference between going five miles over the speed limit than drinking 30 beers, driving 120 miles an hour down the center of Conway. There's a difference in that, isn't there? Just like with sin, we can't say, oh, well, you know, they just sin a little bit. But then there's this blatant thing. There's this big thing. There's this thing that we just say, you know what? And so when we start talking about, well, who can I judge? And how do I know when to call out sin? 
Because we say, well, we're all sinners. Well, yes, we all probably break the speed limit. But there's a point of where something is so blatantly obvious that we shouldn't do it, that it has to be called out. And so just remember, Paul lives in the real world, and so do you. Things aren't always so black and white. Sometimes we've got to use some discernment and some wisdom when dealing with these things. But when it comes to sin, there's a difference between blatantly living a lifestyle of sin, bringing negative testimony to the church, and then just sinning because you're human. N.T. Wright says this. He says, once again, we can imagine how the howls of anger at such suggestions in today's church, unloving, intolerant, judgmental, Paul might well have answered, is the doctor unloving or judgmental when he or she tells you that you must have the operation right away? Do we want a doctor who tolerates viruses, bacteria, cancer cells? And if we say the moral issues Paul means in verse 11 are not like diseases, are we so sure? Do these things build up community or destroy it? Paul continues, verse 12. So we heard about what to do there. And then he says, well, what business of mine is it to judge those? And this is where the church fails all the time. We are too worried about other people that we have no business worrying about. Even Paul says, remember this, memorize that. Some of us are just nosy. But Paul says, what business is mine to judge those outside of the church? Like, don't you have something better to do than to worry about people who aren't in the church? Did you know that Christians are not called to be the world's moral police? In light of election, it's a great time to bring that up. Did you know we're not told to force people to believe what we believe? It's in the Bible. Who am I to judge those outside of the church? And then are you not to judge those inside? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. God will judge those outside. Look what he says. Expel the wicked person from among you. So where we get messed up. People who aren't in the church, do we have any business judging? No. None. We can't judge them by our standards. We shouldn't judge them for what they believe, what they do. They're, they're not a part of the church. We have other things we have to do. One scholar says this. He says, Paul suggests once again that it is not their responsibility as Christians to judge the outside world and decide who are terrible sinners and who are not. Church, do we have a problem with this? Not us. What does Gary say? The church down the street or the church far, far away? Decide who are terrible sinners not. They do not have, excuse me, they do not have to draw up a list of untouchables. That sort of judging is God's business. We don't have to be our country's moral police. We don't have to judge those who don't claim to be Jesus followers. We don't have to judge those who are outside of our church. You see, this situation going on in Corinth where Paul says, expel that wicked person, you probably know what it is. A guy is sleeping with his father's wife. I hope it was his stepmom. Think about it. I hope so. I mean, yeah. And they were proud. Perhaps they were proud. Look, look what we let by. We don't judge anybody. 
Perhaps they thought, well, who am I to say what he can and cannot do? Paul says, you're the church. That is not okay. He says, pagans don't even tolerate that. What pagans, what people who don't believe in Jesus, even they think that's nasty. But yet you're letting it go on in the church. He said, no. Church, you should have standards. And he told them, he said to remove them so he may be saved. That person may be saved on the day of the Lord. Meaning Paul knew more was at stake. This person was living a lifestyle contrary to scripture. He was living a lifestyle that didn't seem to be in line with what Jesus had asked. Well, excuse me, wasn't in line with what Jesus asked him to do. So Paul's not sure. He's, Jesus says, by the fruits you recognize him. So they're looking at this guy going, he doesn't look like a Christian too much to us. I mean, do you know what he's doing? Like publicly, unashamedly. So Paul says, expel that person. The goal is restoration. And they don't want to affirm somebody who's stuck in sin like that. They're more concerned with that person's soul than they are of how upset they may be in that moment. You see, do we forget that souls are at stake? Do we forget that we will stand before Christ and give an account for all that we've done? If you didn't know that, we're talking about that next week. The judgment seat of Christ. You see, this man needed to repent and turn his life over to Christ. Paul wanted him to be restored. And while we're not sure exactly what happened in that, we do have a glimpse of what might happen. You see, in 2 Corinthians, it's another letter Paul wrote to them. We see this little blurb. And again, we're not sure if it's the same person. I like to think it is. Okay, I like to think it's the same person, but we aren't sure. But look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he grieved all of you. I think it's this person. To some extent, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. What would the majority have done? We just learned they would have excluded him. They wouldn't have flogged him. That's not a Christian thing, right? They wouldn't have beat him. That's not a Christian thing. The majority agreed he has to go. Now instead, you ought to, what's this word? Forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow. It says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, we don't know if it's the same person or not, but what we do know is somebody did something to the point of the church said, we can't tolerate this. And that exclusion, that moving the person aside caused him to go, hey, I understand what I did was wrong. I understand this isn't of Christ. I understand this was wrong. And so Paul says, you got to forgive them. you got to bring them back in. So if someone creates, uh, commits a terrible sin, it's something that brings shame upon the church. If they repent, do you, do, you, do you let them stay? Absolutely. If they go off and it doesn't work out, come back, say, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have been a part of that. I know I brought you. Should you let? Of course you let them back in. Paul continues. He said, another reason, verse 9. Another reason I wrote to you is to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. I wonder if Christ does that to us. You think he tests us? The answer is yes. If you didn't know, the answer is yes. Be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. This is the verse I'm trying to get to, verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And this verse is so important. 
Again, I like to think it was that person they had to remove because of their sin. And Paul said to, to bring them back in. Because he said, listen, we're not unaware that Satan is trying to use our unforgiveness hearts, our bitterness, our anger. We're aware that he's trying to use that negativity to harm us. Did you know the reason why Jesus tells you to forgive is to avoid the bitterness and anger that builds up inside of you? You, you, do, you are not immune to that. If you have an unforgiving heart, that means you still think they owe you something. You're still angry. You're still upset. Do you believe Satan will use that to outwit you? Yes. He'll use it to, well, you don't need to, or what you should, you are owed. He says, we're not aware of his scheme. So Paul's saying, listen, you don't want that stuff to build up inside of you. You don't want Satan to use that to bring harm to the church, to bring harm to your family, to bring harm to your life. He says, no, forgive. In other words, when we're dealing with sin, there are are not good outcomes. I mean, a great outcome is somebody, of course, repenting, coming back to Christ. But when blatant sin is, be, is being committed, we have to make a choice. And the goal, of course, would be what? For nobody to ever sin. Can we all just commit to that right now, never to sin again? Yeah, probably wouldn't happen. So we can't get upset about the process of dealing with sin. What we should be upset about is what? Sin. Remember, sin put Jesus on the cross. Sin is a pretty big deal. And so we're dealing with these issues. I know it can be hard. I know it can be challenging. But the reality is we have to do something inside the church. Because we want to help people move towards progressively becoming more like Christ. Right? Sanctification. And the goal is always restoration. And it just dawned on me, if you think that I'm attacking an issue right now, I am not. There's nothing specifically that I'm ready to be like, oh, and by the way, now we got to talk about Bobby. We're not doing that. Okay, we're, we're just looking at the scripture. And so what does this process look like? How do we go about handling it? Wouldn't you know, Jesus told us how. Wasn't that nice of him? Wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was nice of him. Look at this, Matthew 18, Jesus says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the... Does that mean your 14 friends you call to verify and gossip about it before you go to them? No. If somebody does something to you, if somebody harms you, if somebody's in sin, he says, you go to them first. You're like, well, I don't want to go to them. You a follower of Jesus? Yes. He tells you to go to them. You go one-on-one. -on -one. You don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to hurt them. You don't want to harm them. You don't want to start a gossip thing about them. You don't go to prayer meeting and say, hey, I just want to pray for Bobby. I saw him at the store the other day, and you know what he was buying? Nope. We want to pray. For, we want to go straight to them. Just talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And what's really important about this is sometimes people offend you Somebody hurts you, and did you know they didn't know they did it? Have you ever found out that someone was upset about you and you didn't even have a clue about it? You just knew they were being passive-aggressive? We we're not passive-aggressive down here, are we? Yes, very right. Okay, yeah, don't become passive-aggressive. Don't tell everybody. Just go to them and say, hey, you know what? You did upset me. You know, nine out of ten times, if you aren't embarrassing them, and if you're just going to them one-on-one, -on -one, what are they probably going to say? So if we already know, they're probably going to say, I'm sorry. 
For one, perhaps we could overlook the offense. Proverbs tells us that. But if we can't, we just can't let it go. Just go to them. And say, hey, you know, you really harmed me when you stepped on my shoes. I just got them. They were brand new. I just hurt my feelings. But sometimes they're going to say, I don't care what you say. Verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's quoting the Old Testament there. So the idea is, hey, you know what? You're not willing to listen to me. Perhaps I'm wrong on this. So I go and get one or two other people. Hey, I need you to go with me. I want to explain the situation. And then you kind of work this out. And so you may go take two or three people, say, hey, Bobby, you stepped on my white shoes. I just couldn't believe it. And these two people may look at me and go, what are you doing? And so, so Bobby may be right. right. The two or three witnesses may come in and say, Brian, what you, who cares about your white shoes? Let it go. So I may find that bringing other people into it that I'm wrong. Or they may affirm, listen, Bobby, when you stepped on those shoes, you really hurt his feelings. Trying to use a very light example, right? But we see how this could go. Okay, we get the point. And so if these people say, no, no, you need to repent from the shoe stepping, Paul, Jesus isn't done. Verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Do you know that I've never met one pastor who couldn't wait to call a business meeting to do this? Who wants to do this? Nobody. Oh, yeah, next part. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Who started the church? Jesus. Who said to handle conflict and sin inside the church? Jesus. But what other choice do we have? If we say nothing, number one, we're flat out ignoring the Bible. And you know as well as I do, if we say nothing, it's the same as affirmation. We then bring testimony on the church. I mean, excuse me, we bring a shame on the testimony of the church. And we ignore the loving response of caring for their souls. I promise you I would never bring before the church somebody stepping on my white shoes. We would never do it that silly. What other choice do you have? The second is following Jesus. Who commands us, if we are following him, to handle sin and conflict this way. And we embrace that love doesn't mean I want harm to you. That love says I want to look out for you even when you don't look out for yourself. Those of you who have children or have had children or have seen a child understand how that works. I don't let my kids stick metal things in electrical sockets, not because I don't like them, but because I love them. Do they want to stick metal inside of electrical sockets? They absolutely do. But I say, you know, it's not good for you. You may be upset, you may throw a temper tantrum, but it's not good for you. You see, sin, the reality is sin puts us in a dilemma. And a dilemma is, you know this, a dilemma is at least two difficult choices that we would rather not face. But what puts us in a dilemma? It's sin. 
It's the fact that 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 thing that isn't holy, that thing that is harmful is happening and you have to take care of it. And so who are we to judge? Well, the answer is we're the church. We're the people of God set aside for his purpose and called to live life change together, to grow to be more like Jesus. And we are clearly, I mean, absolutely clearly told there is no gray area in this. I'm just letting you know. I tell you if there was. No gray area in the idea that we are to hold each other accountable. Jesus gives us a way to deal with sin. And I completely understand if you don't like it. I don't either. I don't like this. But as I've told you before, I've seen in my personal life what happens when I choose to ignore Jesus' commands. It never goes well for me. And perhaps you've seen in your life where you've ignored Jesus, or maybe you've seen when a church chooses to ignore Jesus' commands, what ends up happening. And I understand the pushback. I've even heard people say, I mean, as the pastor, I promise you, I've heard people say, I would never be a part of a church who did things like that. Please understand what you're communicating is you're saying you don't want to be a part of a church who follows Jesus. You don't want to be a part of a church who takes the Bible serious. And as a church, remember this, we never have to apologize for following Jesus. We never have to apologize for carrying out the command that our founder has put in place. No more than America apologizes to other countries when we follow our constitution. Have you ever heard the Supreme Court calling another country saying, hey, I'm really sorry that we followed our Bill of Rights this week. I'm, I'm sorry, England, you're upset about that, but we were dealing with something like, who do they care? And why are they worried? They wouldn't be, that wouldn't happen. Because as Americans, we decided in 1776 that we were gonna do things our way. Does the Supreme Court rule on what other people do in other countries? But do they judge what happens in our country? Absolutely. And sure, in our country, it's messy. Sure, people have plenty to say about what Americans do. And sure, our process can be ugly. And sure, it can be messy. But this is still the greatest country the world's ever seen. And similarly, I hope you understand my illustration. If you have made a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ, then you're committing to follow him and his word. And his word is right here. As a Christian, this now gives us what we have to follow and what we have to do. And, and again, that means if you have personally made a decision, it's not about what your parents did or your grandparents did or how many times you went to church. When you are confessing that Jesus is Lord, you're saying he is in charge and I'm not. Which means we follow what he tells us to do. And so we don't have to apologize for using the Bible. And in a church, we must. What's very important is do we use the Bible to judge what non-Christians do? Not our place. Who's going to judge them? God. And that's what the church has to stop. Stop holding people accountable for something they don't believe. But if they do believe, if they are a part of the church, well, then we are to hold each other accountable. And before we get caught up with the process of how, to, how we are to deal with sin, before we get upset at the church or Jesus for even bringing anything up like this, I just want to ask you two questions. 
Does your job have a method and measure to deal with people who aren't doing their job correctly? Somebody in your company or your place of employment is, is, is hurting your place of employment, would they do something about it? Well, how would you justify that then? Is the church not more important than your workplace? Is the church not more important than your business? If you owned your own business, would you allow people to do whatever they want whenever they want while you're paying them? Absolutely not. Because the world has standards. It's just the reality of it. So why would the church? Does the educational institute that you went to or want to go to or your parents are trying to force you to go to or that you've thought about going to, do they have rules you have to follow? Are there rules about integrity and plagiarism? Well, do you get mad at the college for having standards? Of course not. So why would you be mad at a church for having standards? And isn't it interesting when you think about schools? In fact, the schools with the highest standards are actually the ones most desired. Standards aren't a bad thing. We have to remember Jesus created the church. The church would be meaningless if we didn't have standards. Luckily for us, Jesus wasn't done. We're almost finished. I'm almost finished, but Jesus kept going. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose in earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for it be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. You see, we talk about this as a promise to prayer. We're like, well, two or three are gathered. But Jesus is on the heels of talking about conflict, about a church having to deal with conflict. This verse directly applies to the fact that Jesus is saying that process is going to be hard, that process is going to be uncomfortable. I understand you're not going to want to do it, but guess what? I'll be there with you. Jesus is assuring us that when we have to deal with hard things in the church, he will be right there with us. It's a pretty important thing to know. He says, I know, but I'll be there with you. And so why is this so important to follow? Why must church leaders and people take this serious? Again, we'll talk about it next week as we talk about the judgment seat of Christ. I promise you're not going to want to miss that one. I'm going to end on this. Craig Bloomberg says this. He says, the world is waiting to see such a church, a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combined the joyful celebration, are you joyful for the Lord? With an awesome sense of God's intimacy, immediacy, and authority. I think he's right. I think the world is waiting for the church to show them what Jesus Christ can truly do. So let's get serious about life change. Let's get serious about discipleship. Let's understand that as a church, we are actually called to judge. If it makes you uncomfortable, it makes all of us uncomfortable. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. Father, we understand that sin is serious and it makes us so uncomfortable to think about having to
deal with conflict or talk to our, our friend or family member or person we know about saying, Lord, it's, it's just uncomfortable. Father, help us remember our goal is to please you. Our goal of love is to restore and help people follow Jesus better. Father, we know the great price you paid for our sin. Jesus, you came down in human form and were nailed upon that cross and died for us. Lord, wait, may we never forget that sin isn't just something that's not a big deal. May we never forget that sin is a radically unholy big deal. So Father, help us live for you. Help us live in your grace. Father, help us have a strong testimony for you. Father, I pray that our lives would display your glory. I pray that our marriages, the way we interact with our kids, our integrity at work, the way we handle our money, Lord, I just pray that they would bring you glory. I pray that people would see our lifestyle and just say, what's different? Lord, let our testimony bring you glory. Forgive us for we fail. We're reminded of your precious grace. We don't earn our way to heaven. Father, thank you so much. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.